Finish we are in tab number three, final tab. Yes, if you go to tab number three, we'll be covering the pages that follow tonight, next week, and the following week, and that's it. So three weeks, counting tonight, and then we're we're done. That will take us, tonight's the 6th, 13th, 20th, and then the 27th, we will have a class that Dr. Combs will be teaching. This class will be done. His class will be done. Class over here will be done. So Dr. Combs will have just a one-night class on using some free Bible software on how to study the Bible. So we'll be doing that if you're interested in that. And show up at 7 o'clock on the 27th, and he'll be doing that. Yeah, the 27th. And then the following week, for those of you that have kids in the uh, midweek kids program, that's the Derby, Pinewood Derby. But the adult classes will be over in four weeks. On the 27th, the 27th will be just that one class that Dr. Combs will be doing. So we've got tonight and two weeks to, to finish this off. And we are in tab number three in your notebooks, which is Applying the Bible. In fact, if you look at the upper right-hand corner of the first page after tab three, it says that, part three, applying the Bible. So we've looked at a survey of the Bible, and then we've looked at uh, understanding the Bible, and now in the next two weeks, applying the Bible. And on page one there, we say we have seen that the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors. These authors wrote at different times from different backgrounds about varied events and circumstances, yet the Bible is consistent in its message because although humans compose the Bible, God is the ultimate author. Further, the Bible is one story focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's answer to what has gone wrong in his good world. The Bible begins with creation and the creator orienting the creature to his world. But the fall of man into sin meant that the world became distorted or disoriented for him. God has stepped in to redeem or make right what has gone wrong by the entrance of sin and thereby reorient his world to his original design. This reorientation will come through the seed of a woman, which will produce God's chosen redeemer, who will come through his chosen people. The story of the Bible, then, is about God's relentless march toward fulfillment of his promise to redeem his world. So you see in that paragraph in italics, we've got the terms that I kept beating you up with for the first many weeks of our course, that the Bible is about these three things, creation and fall and redemption. And creation is who God is and what he expects from us. That's an orientation to ourselves, to him, and to the world he's placed us in. So you've got creation and orientation. You've got the fall, the entrance of sin, what our problem is. That's disorientation. And then you've got redemption, what God's going to do about it, and that's reorientation. So that's in one paragraph, really a summary statement of what the Bible is about. Therefore, third paragraph, despite the fact that the Bible is a big book containing different types of literature and addressing multiple issues, the message of each passage can be summarized This way, it's people in situations before God. And though the particulars of our situations are different from those in biblical times, people in God are the same. Therefore, the Bible's principles are relevant for all people in every age. In order for the purpose for which God gave the Bible to be achieved, it's necessary that we apply the principles of biblical passages. So this section is going to focus on practical examples of gleaning principles from God's word And how these truths can be applied to our lives. So we begin with three steps on how to apply the Bible. Three steps on applying the Bible. The first is what we looked at in section two, understanding the Bible. And that is understand the application of a passage to the people to whom it was originally written. That's what we mean when we say step one, understand the original application. Understand how it applied to the people to whom it was originally written. That requires, as we say here, that we understand the author's intended meaning by following the principles that were laid out in the section that we just completed, section two, understanding understanding the Bible. And let me just uh, 
read for you a uh, it, this actually happened names have, the name has been changed but just a, a dilemma of a pastor uh, and how some of what we learned in section 2 would apply to his his dilemma and then we can uh, start looking at practical ways to apply apply the Bible but uh, Eric Jones is the senior pastor names have been changed of a thriving congregation of 800 in a rural farming community in western Michigan one weekend Pastor Jones had prepared a message on Psalm 121 for his Sunday morning message but at 2 a.m. on Sunday he was awakened by a telephone call telling him that a teenager teenage son of one of his church leaders had been killed in a traffic accident late Saturday night he rushed to the hospital to comfort the grieving family when he returned home he found himself unable to sleep entering his study to review and brush up on the message he realized he had an applicational problem on his hands his message was drawn from Psalm 121 which says the Lord will keep you from all harm he will watch over your life And that psalm contains other statements of confidence in God's protection. When he had chosen to preach from the passage, he was drawn to those comforting statements. Now, in light of the tragedy, he found these statements disturbing. The young man who was killed had a solid testimony of faith, was respected by other teens for his godly example. So why would God, who seemed to promise protection in Psalm 121, allow that to happen? So then how is he, the pastor, going to be able to going to be able to preach that. And that really has then relevance for how we apply how we apply the Bible. How do we apply a passage like Psalm 121 where God's making this promise of protection when in fact protection doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen to us and sometimes it doesn't happen in very very tragic ways. Well, one way to deal with that is to remember some of the principles that we talked about in Section 2. I'm going to remind you of the four principles that we that we saw there. The first one was that uh, text cannot mean what it never meant. So a passage cannot mean today what it never meant to the people to whom it was, was written. That was first. But then the second one was all texts are not alike. And remember what that was about? That different books of the Bible... Uh, are written differently in different uh, styles and different genres is the fancy word different types of literature and so they have to be interpreted accordingly all texts are not alike and then a third principle that we saw was that a text has only one meaning but once you place a text in its context and take into consideration the type of book that contains it what kind of literature it is it only has one meaning And then the fourth and final principle was the Bible communicates a unified message. These are all in your prior pages in section 2, but I'm just reminding you of that. A text cannot mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike. A text has only one meaning, and the Bible communicates a unified message. Those four things. Now, of those four, which one do you think applies directly to the situation that this pastor has? He's been looking at Psalm 121. And Psalm 121 has these comforting phrases, but now something has happened that seems to contradict what Psalm 121 says. So one of those principles applies very directly to this. Um, you know, a text cannot mean what it never meant. Is it that? No. Let me answer it for you. No. All texts are not alike is, is the one that's directly applicable to this because... Psalm 121 is just that. It's a a psalm. And it's a a song. It's a poem. And we'll we'll talk about how then that affects the application in in just a bit. But I just set that up for you because these are real-life examples for us. And if you don't understand that, then instead of that scenario being a preacher trying to figure it out, it's going to be you personally trying to figure it out. Because you're reading in the Bible these promises, and then things go haywire, and then you say, you know, God didn't tell me the truth. God has somehow broken his promise. So we'll see a little bit later that that's, that's not the case. 
So the first step is to understand the original application. That means using the principles that I just listed and that we had in section two. But then step two to applying the Bible is we need to abstract the continuing truth. Now, because the Bible is old, because the last book was written 1,600 years ago, the first book was written uh, no sooner than 3,500 years ago, and the book of Job may be older than that. So the Bible is ancient, and all of the all of the um, all of the obstacles to interpreting the Bible that we saw in section two now can become obstacles to applying the Bible. And that's why we say step two is to abstract the continuing truth. Because there's there's what was going on with them way back then. And then there's how do I apply that to me now? And in order to do that, I've got to get out of whatever passage I'm looking at the truth that continues, that was true then, but is also true now. So that then I can make application of it. I mean, there's going to be some stuff, we'll see examples of it, there's going to be some stuff that doesn't continue. And that's why we say abstract the continuing truth. There are some things that you read in the Bible that were for then and there, and they don't carry through to today. There are things they did we don't do. And there are good reasons, biblical reasons, that we don't do them. So I can't carry that over and apply that. So I need to abstract what does continue. That's why step two is called that. Abstract the continuing truth. And to do that, you've got to do a couple of things. You see A and B. A is measure the distance between then and there and here and now. So try to get your arms around the distance between where I am in 26, where we are in 2016, and where they were when the passage you're considering was originally written. And that distance is affected by 1, 2, and 3. By genre, that is the type of literature that it is, by the culture, and by, and by theology. So measure the distance between then and there and, and here and now. We stand on the edge of the biblical world and we look over... Uh, at the modern world. As we look at the Bible, we're in the biblical world and then we're in the, the, the modern world of our day. And we look down at the chasm, the gulf between between the two, and we want to know how far the distance is between the one and the other. So what can we use to span the gap between where the Bible is and where we are so we can concretely and authoritatively apply it to apply it to ourselves? So one of the issues that creates that gap is, in on page two, the genre or the type of literature. And you've got the aforementioned Psalm 121. And the pastor's dilemma about these promises that are made in Psalm 121. But notice what kind of genre it is, what kind of type of literature it is. It is a, it is poetry. It is, a, it is a song. So the Psalms are quite literally songs, and they were theological poems written to be sung. And like all the songs, the Psalms have an emotional quality to them. They express the emotions of the psalmist, and they were designed to evoke emotions when they were sung. So think about emotional language. Emotional language works best when it's raw and unnuanced. So emotional language, like you wouldn't want to say, you wouldn't want to write a love song that says, I love you more than the last girl I dated. <laughs> right? <laughs> you would not want to say that. So you would, you know, in your song, I love you more than anything. I love you, right? So this is emotional language, and that's the kind of the category, the kind of genre that, that it is. And the language of the Psalms tends to be absolute for emotional effect. But they were never intended to be. They're poems. They were never intended to be legal guarantees in every situation. 
They're poems, and like we write poems for emotional effect, so did they. So, uh, Fee and Stewart. This is a, a book that uh, I used in seminary. They still use it in seminary, Fee and Stewart? And uh, it's, they wrote a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, I think I, I have the print version of that from many years ago, but I got the Kindle version of it for like three ninety nine. You know, it's really cheap, so if you're a Kindle person, you can download it pretty cheap. It's very helpful. But here's what they say. They say the Psalms do not guarantee a pleasant life. It's a misunderstanding, an over-literalization of the language of the Psalms to infer from some of them that God promises to make his believers happy and their lives trouble-free. David, who expresses in the Psalms God's blessings in the strongest terms, lived a life that was filled with almost constant tragedy and disappointment. Yet he praises and thanks God enthusiastically at every turn, even in laments. Some of the Psalms are, are called lament psalms. So the answer to that pastor's dilemma then was for him to recognize that the author of Psalm 121 never intended to give an unconditional promise of safety to everybody who, who trusts in God. So if we're going to measure this distance, one of the ways we got to do that is take into account what kind of book am I dealing with, poetry in the case of the, the Psalms. But then there's also another type, uh, and there are more types than just the three. These are just examples. But there's narrative. And narrative, as I've told you a number of times, um, comprises two-thirds of your Bible. Narrative is someone narrating. The writer is writing and is narrating what happened with people other than you. (laughs) You weren't there. So the writer is narrating, telling the story of what happened. And that's why... Uh, we say here under B, narrative describes what happened to other people rather than prescribes what's supposed to happen with you. And again, we saw that in section two, that that's an interpretive principle. All texts are not alike, so when you look at narrative, bear that in mind. It's describing, but not directly prescribing what should happen to you. And an example of that you see listed there is Judges chapter six. Judges six. Judges 6 contains the story of Gideon. And Gideon's putting out a fleece before the Lord. Now, have any of you... Now, if you've said this, you don't have to confess. But have any of you heard? That's the way we'll do it. You know, I know somebody who... Who has used Gideon putting out a fleece for how to make decisions in your life. Has anybody ever heard that? Yes. You have. You put out, if you want to, you know, if you want to know if something is God's will, put out a fleece. Now, they don't literally, you know, go and shear a sheep and put out a fleece, but but you somehow put a test out there because that's what Gideon did. Remember, Gideon says, you know, if it's wet, well, okay, then if it's dry. Or if it's, and so he's, he's seeing if the will of God is is uh, certain on this uh, matter of going to war against the Midianites. And um, so let's follow suit. Now, what is Judges? What is Judges chapter 6? That's narrative. It's telling the story, narrating what Gideon did. And it's describing that. It's not necessarily prescribing it for you. So the fact that Gideon did this doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Right? you got to let the context tell you whether or not it was a good thing or not for Gideon to put out a fleece. So here's what verses 36 and 37 say. Judges 6, 36 and 37. Gideon says, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. All right, now. I'll know that you're going to do what you already said if you make this thing happen that I'm saying should happen. 
Now, there's a word for that. Unbelief. Because in those two verses, Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, you've already promised to do that. And then he goes on to say, I, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. He says you've promised it. He says to God, you've said you'll do it. I just want to make sure that you really mean it. So I'm going to put this fleece out there. And you let me know, God, if you really mean it. So what Gideon did was an act of unbelief, and it was an act of unbelief because Gideon was afraid. He didn't want to do this thing. Now, I'd, you know, I'd be afraid too. <clears throat> and I'm not saying I would have done anything any better. But if I did it, it would have been an act of unbelief, just like it was for Gideon. So then for us to take what Gideon did and say, well, Gideon put a fleece out before the Lord. I'm going to find my equivalent fleece. Lord, <clears throat> if you want me to go to this particular college, then have the phone ring in the next 10 minutes. Okay. And then, lo and behold, the phone rings. And God's honored your fleece. He's told you, or if I'm supposed to marry Susie, you know, have someone knock at the door, you know, in the next half hour, and that will be my sign that this is what you want me to do. And you have pe people do this kind of thing. And that's their version of putting a fleece out before the Lord. If this is what you want me to do, then make this happen. And that's what Gideon said. If this is really what you want me to do, then have that fleece be wet in the uh, in the morning. And it was an act of it was an act of unbelief. So these stories in the Bible don't directly tell us what to do, but they they do still teach us. Because remember, Second Timothy three sixteen says all scripture is God breathed and is useful. All scripture is useful. So even though these are stories that are written to other people a long time ago, it doesn't mean they're useless for us, quite the quite the contrary, but but we've got to make proper use of them. And improper use of them is simply to read them and say, Gideon did a fleece, I need to do a fleece. That's not what the Bible's is telling us. Those stories don't teach Directly, but they do indirectly. The authors of the narratives in Scripture demonstrate truth by accurately recording God's work in the lives of people. In order to understand the teaching of a narrative, we've got to then look at the big picture. Not everything the characters did is hate behavior that's to be to be modeled. So let me give you a, a line that is helpful to look for when you're reading a story that's narrating what happened to other people. Look in it for common human experience. Look in those stories for common human experience. Because that's why they're there. They're there to narrate, tell the story of how people tend to act. They're faced with something daunting. We're faced with something daunting. How do we tend to act? Afraid? Cowardly? Well, that's what you see. That's what you see in Gideon. So you look for common human experience. And as you look at that, and you try to place yourself in Gideon's shoes, you say, what would I be thinking if I'm supposed to go against an overwhelming force uh, in, in, in battle? And common human experience would say, I'd be afraid. Now, what do we do when we're afraid? Sometimes we run, which... You know, you take, um, this, is, this is not afraid, Jonah. You know, Jonah's supposed to go to Nineveh. The Ninevites, you know, the Assyrians, it's the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians are ferocious, uh, violent people. And he's going to go and tell them, get right with God. <laughs> so he goes, he goes, no, not for me, right? Now, that's all true what I just said. The Ninevites were all of that. But it turns out that the real reason that Jonah didn't go wasn't because he was afraid. There was plenty to be afraid of. But in Jonah chapter 4, the last chapter of Jonah, it, we get the real reason why he didn't want to go. He hates the Ninevites. 
And he doesn't want them to come to God. In fact, when they repent, he's ticked. That's what he's mad about. Chapter 4, he goes, see, I knew you were going to do this. I know I know you were forgiving God, and sure enough, what do you do? You go and forgive him. And that's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Okay? Well, again, common human experience. Do you have people that you despise? You know, people that you want to see get theirs? They deserve what's coming to them. And that's what that's what Jonah felt about the, the Ninevites. So it's it's common human experience in these. Alright. Your notes, here's another uh, genre, another type of literature where in order to apply it, we've got to take into consideration what type of passage are we dealing with, the Gospels. And an example of this is in Matthew chapter 8. So we'll look at Matthew chapter 8 in a minute, but remember the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke and John. And these are about the human life of Jesus when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels are woven together to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that he's the the promised one, he's the anointed one, the Christ. And the desired response is belief. John specifically in his Gospel claimed that the goal for what he wrote in John 20 and verse 31 is, He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So, the Gospels are written to prove who Jesus is. And they weave together these teachings and these acts of his to to show that. So now you come to a passage like Matthew chapter 8. Now what's in Matthew chapter 8? Well, it's the uh, Jesus calming the, the sea. And you remember the story there that Jesus is in a boat with his first followers. And he's sleeping. I love that part. Okay, Jesus is sleeping. A violent storm comes up. And in the midst of the storm, Jesus is still sleeping. And these guys are going crazy. Because they know that people die in these things. When these winds in the Sea of Galilee come up, they, they can take someone's life. And these some of them are experienced fishermen, so this is quite a squall that they're having that scares them that much. And so they are scared and they go, but they have to wake Jesus up. And they say, don't you care that we're going to die? You know, I can hear them saying, you know, what are you, a Calvinist? You know, you just believe God's in control of everything, don't you? And and Jesus is roused from his sleep, and you remember he says, Peace be still. And immediately the winds and the waves obey him. And those guys who were scared because of the storm, do you remember what it says after that? What's the reaction to this? The reaction is like, Man, am I glad you're here. No, the reaction is, And they were, in the King James, it says they were sore afraid. Now, they're more afraid after he calms the storm than before. Now, why? Why are they so afraid after he wakes up and just says, peace be still? That doesn't usually happen. And who are you in the presence of? You're in the presence of God. They knew they say that what manner of man is this so we're in the presence of somebody completely different and and that's common human experience picture yourself being them with Jesus you know he he looks like every other man he's he's unlike every other man Michael Card says and yet so much like me That's a lyric in one of his songs. He's like every other man, unlike any other man, but yet so much like me. And that's what they would find, you know? He looked like them. And, you know, he 
He got hungry and he fell asleep. He was fully human. But there was something different about him. And that something different was that he was not just human. He was the God-man. God and man. And they get glimpses of that from time to time. And Matthew chapter 8 is one of those. So what is Matthew chapter 8 and that story then seeking to show? It's seeking to show who Jesus is. Now, how is that usually preached? What what it's about is, is who Jesus is. But a common way that that is preached is to compare the perils of the disciples to the trials of our lives. And we apply the passage by saying that Jesus will calm the storms of your life if uh, he's in your life. The boat is a symbol for for life, say say they. Now, it's true, right, that that a God who can do anything then can do anything in your life. That's certainly that's certainly true, and it's certainly worth mentioning. But that's not why that story is in there. That story is in there to show who Jesus is, that he is he's God, that he is the Messiah. All right, so we measure the distance between then and there and here and now, take into consideration what kind of literature it is, because that affects then how we're going to apply it, but then also the culture that's involved in the particular passage. And here's an example in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 8. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 8. And here's what it says. Now, Deuteronomy is part of the books of the law, and it gives laws. In fact, the name of the book, Deuteronomy, means second law, because in the book of Deuteronomy... The Ten Commandments are given a second time. You have them first in Exodus 20, but then you have them again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Deuteronomy gives laws to govern the life of uh, Israel, lives of Israelites. And Deuteronomy 22.8 says this. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. So here's a law. When you build a house, put a parapet around the the roof so that you won't be guilty if someone falls off and dies. What's a parapet? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) And that says to me, Michael, that you've never put a parapet around your roof. When you ask me what's a parapet, you have just confessed before all. That you have disobeyed God's word directly by not having a parapet on your roof. Let us all stone Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Let the stonings commence. All right. No. What's a what's a parapet? No. What is it? It's a it's a guardrail. It's a fence. Like. And why would you why would you do that on your roof? Well, on your roof, on my roof, you wouldn't, because I've got a pitched roof, and probably most of you do as well. You could put one on this roof because it's flat, this building. And in that day, uh, most of the roofs were that. They were flat. Not only were they flat, but people would actually go up there. And they would go up there in the evenings because it was cool. And they would actually have guests up there. They would entertain people. So now, understanding that... In that culture, that that's the way roofs were often used, you can see why there's a, a, in the law saying, put a guardrail around it. So that if somebody falls off, you're not guilty of killing, harming them. Now, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to apply that directly to you and, and to me, because we don't have those kinds of roofs, and uh, we don't, um, uh, and therefore, we and we don't entertain on top of our roofs. But it doesn't mean it doesn't apply. And we'll see, maybe before we leave today, how even something like that applies to to us. And then another example is head coverings. You've got in First Corinthians uh, chapter eleven a situation where Paul, who wrote that, is talking about. Uh, the role of women in the church 
and the activity of women in ministering in the church. And a big issue in that is submission, authority and submission. And he says, as Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. God the Father is the head of Christ. So you've got this authority submission and women are to be in submission to the men. Well, in in Corinth, one way that they showed that, that submission was with a head covering. Now, you don't find this head covering thing in, in other passages, in other settings. This appears to be something that was going on in, in Corinth. We don't find it in Ephesus. We don't find it in Philippi. We don't find it uh, well, in Ephesus, for example, where Timothy was a pastor. And Timothy's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And as Paul writes First and Second Timothy on how to order the church and the life of the church, he doesn't say anything about it and make sure those women all wear these head coverings. In fact, he covers, he does deal with authority and submission in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but nothing about head coverings. So based on that, most conclude, and I conclude, that the head covering was a cultural thing, but it was a way of showing submission. So we need to then abstract the continuing truth in our day what are ways that that could, that could happen in our day other than the specific of the head covering? All right, and then a third barrier to application is theology. Theology. And the reason that theology can be a barrier is because God has not given us the Bible all at one time, but rather he's given it to us over time. The Bible was written over a 1,600-year period. You know, if the first books of the Bible were the books of Moses, let's just say that, put Job aside for a moment, but if the books of Moses were the first, then that's 1,500 years before Christ. And then after Christ comes, you have the apostles writing books of the New Testament, and that's during the first century. The last book written is the last book in the Bible, Revelation, written by the Apostle John in 95 AD. So you're almost at the end of the first century. So 1,500 for Moses, another 100 years in the first century, that's where we get that 1,600 years. The Bible was written over a 1,600-year period with books being written in between. So God didn't give it to us all at once, but that's why we say on page 2, progress of revelation. That... God has doled out over time information about uh, information about himself, information about his plan. And you see there that we, we say, see the appendix for the dispensations chart. But you don't have an appendix with the dispensations chart. However, never fear. <laughs> because I have this thing, this handout for you. Please take one one sheet past the month. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but it's front and back. And it shows you seven dispensations. Seven dispensations. And the idea of a dispensation is, as I've explained previously, is that this is a, a a dispensation is a particular way of God ordering his world in order to achieve his glory. A dispensation is a particular way of God ordering his world in order to achieve his glory. Dispensation is a Bible word. It's found in Colossians 1, it's found in Ephesians 3 and verse 2. 
In the NIV, it's translated administration, the word administration. In the King James, it's dispensation. That's So that's where we get that. And the word means house order, house law. So that's why I say a dispensation is a way of God ordering his world. God's making the rules at a particular time, but he, he will build on those rules over time in the progress of, of revelation. And most who see God working this way, see the Bible laid out in a way that God is operating according to these different house rules, house orders, see seven such distinct dispensations. And that's why this thing is called the seven dispensations. And if you look, it's very busy and it's small font, so apologies. But let me just quickly explain. On the left side, so on the side that says seven dispensations up the top, then if you look along the left column, it gives you the dispensation. The first one is innocence. You guys see that? And then if you go down a little bit, it says conscience, government. Those are numbered one, two, and three. Number four is promise. And then number five is law. And then if you turn it over, number six is grace. And number seven is the kingdom. So those are these seven dispensations. Now, again, in all seven of those, God has given different rules for how things are ordered. Well, in the dispensation of innocence, that's Genesis 1 and 2. So what were the rules? Well, the rules were, you know, you've got all the trees in the garden, and you may freely eat of them, except one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, how do you apply the theology of that? You've got a tree you can't eat from because you don't have any such thing, do you? We don't have any such. God has not ordered his world that way. We're not in that dispensation. But it doesn't mean it has no application to us. One, we're related to Adam, and we sinned in Adam, and we're suffering the consequences of disobeying that one. But you can start to see, I think, how you can how you can bridge the gap between then and there and here and now, just even with that. God has given, gave rules to Adam, he gave commands to Adam, and Adam was to obey those, he disobeyed. Well, God hasn't given that command to us, but he's given other commands to us, right? And so, common human experience again. Uh, what does it look like for us to obey? What happens when we when we disobey and so on? Um, so, as I say, I'm not going to go through these in detail, but you can see what they are. And then the other columns are the opening event for that particular dispensation, the responsibility that God gave to man and what man did and how God responded. Now, look in the middle of those columns there. Man's responsibility, man's failure, man's tendency. And notice the responsibility is the same in all of them. Do you guys see that? Believe and obey. Now, the content of what you were to believe is different. You know, Adam was not told, believe in Jesus, right? Because Jesus hadn't come. But he was told to believe God and take God at his word and obey what God said. And then likewise for Abel, believe and obey. And then you go down to promise and um, and, and Abraham, believe and obey what God has, has said. And the Bible says, and Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what did he believe? He believed the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham didn't know who Jesus was. But he still, so the content of what they believed was different. But the requirement was always the same, belief. But it was believe 
the content of the house order, the rules that God had, had given. So that was the responsibility. And then what did man do? Uh, he always messed up. I mean, look at his failure. And look at his tendency. Every time, notice it's the same, away from God. And you look at then how God responded to people that he's commanded, and they the tendency is to move away from God. His response is judgment. You see the closing event, judgment? But there's a silver lining every time. Because there's always somebody or somebodies who God rescues from the judgment. And that's that rightmost column, personal salvation. And you see the requirement for personal salvation in all of these different dispensations. It's always the same. Do you see it there? By grace through faith. It's always by grace through faith. So even when they were under the law, they weren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved by one God's grace singling some of them out to obey when others disobeyed. So they were saved by grace and then they were saved by believing God and that belief in God showed in them obeying God. You know, so we're going to see Noah here on Sunday mornings at some point um, in, in our Genesis series uh, and in the next few weeks. And, you know, Noah's told, build an ark. Well, you know, you're not you're not told any of this. You know, Ken Ham's building an ark in uh, Kentucky. Looks like it's going to be a really cool thing. I mean, a, a real biblical-sized ark that's opening July 7th. And for the first 40 days, they're going to have... It'll be open during the day and open at night for the first 40 days because they're expecting so many people to come to this thing. I thought about setting up a group uh, outing for the church to go to that. But I don't want to go this first year because it's just going to be too insane. That's the way it was seven years ago when they opened the Creation Museum. The first year, first couple of years, it was just insane. Now you can go to the Creation Museum, you know, and you don't, you're not shoulder to shoulder. So in a few years, though, I'd like to go and visit. I'd like to go and visit that. Maybe we'll do it as a church. But God told Noah to build a, a boat, this enormous boat. Obviously, something He's not telling anybody else to do. But the responsibility of Noah was the same as ours. It was to believe and obey. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6 eight. The reason he obeyed and other people didn't is not because Noah was good, but because God was good to Noah. By giving him his grace, and then that was shown in Noah's obedience. Alright, so you can just tuck that away. That's what, uh, that's what that is. But it's just attempting to show you that Theology, that is doctrine, teaching, that God has given at different times in his ordering of the house of his world, has an effect then on how you apply the Bible. And let me give an an example of this distance of being in a different dispensation. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, you have the story of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant. Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, King David has led the Israelites to recapture the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and they were supposed to use special poles to to carry the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But they decided we're not going to use these poles that that God had designed to go through these loops in the bottom of this box that is the Ark of the Covenant. You guys remember what the Ark of the Covenant was? It was in the Holy of Holies and it was the place where God met with so the presence of God was specially there and so therefore this is a very holy uh, piece of furniture and it's not to be touched 
And to keep it from being touched, God designed it very carefully so that these poles could go through these loops in the bottom of it and the, the, the poles could be touched but not the ark itself. But they decide to construct a cart to get it back, a cart with wheels. And as they're taking it back, the cart uh, starts to uh, turn over and the ark is going to fall. And Uzzah reaches out and touches it to balance it. And as soon as he touches it, he dies. God kills him. And Second Samuel 6 says that, that Uzzah had committed an irreverent act. An irreverent act. By reaching out and touching this most holy piece of furniture. And we all look at it and go, Hey, I was just trying to help out. As he stands before the Lord, I'm sure that's what, hey, I was just trying to help out. Yeah. All right? So there's a lot of distance between us and that, right? Okay, you got a lot of stuff going on there that's not happening with you. You know, holy pieces of furniture um, that you can't touch and summary judgment upon you if you do. But there are still lessons there, aren't there? Us is just trying to help God out. Isn't that what Uzzah is doing? He's just trying to help God out. So let me ask you, does God need your help? Does God need Uzzah's help? And that you want to come away from that, applying that to yourself, going, God doesn't, God wants my obedience. He doesn't want my help. You know, and I said on Sunday, I said something like that on Sunday, that, you get people, I gave examples of how you know people will just sort of help God out by disobeying. You know, I'm just going to date this person because, God, you know, you haven't brought me anybody. So clearly you need a little help. So I'm going to date this unsaved person. But God says don't do that. And, and yet, that's the kind of thinking we can have. I'm going to, I'm going to help God out with this. So, lots of ways that you could think of, I think, in your own life where we can be irreverent toward the holiness of God and the commands of God when we get the idea like Uzzah did that he's got to be helped out. But in order to do that, you've got to cross the bridge between the theology of what was going on there and where we are now. All right, back to your notes. There's also the refutation of false teaching that you will find in passages So Galatians chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll read those even in your New Testament, and they're dealing with doctrinal issues that you may not have to encounter. And so you, you may or may not. You certainly are not encountering them the same way they were. In Galatians chapter 5, you've got people saying that you've got to be circumcised and, and trying to make matters of the law like circumcision part of the gospel. Well, you're not going. To, you're not encountering that. You don't. You're not encountering people saying that. But are you encountering equivalent kinds of things that you've got to add stuff? It's not circumcision, but you've got to add stuff to the gospel. Yeah, you got that all over the place. I mean, did you know that Roman Catholicism believes in salvation by grace through faith? Did you know that they do? It's just they don't believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. See, it's not the grace and faith piece. It's the alone piece. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's the word alone that's the really important thing. They believe in grace. They believe in faith. They add stuff to it. They don't add circumcision. They add a whole list of, a whole list of works. But you've got to make that cross that. Now, that brings us then to B on page 2. And that is determining whether or not a passage is a sidewalk passage or a, a bridge passage. A sidewalk passage, and these are just things that we make up when calling them sidewalk. That's uh, just using an illustration that hopefully is helpful to you. But you see there, a sidewalk passage is one where the application comes straight to us. 
That is, it deals with universal kinds of sins, universal theology. So passages where the people to whom it was written and what was going on with them is the same as us. And so that's a sidewalk passage because the distance between them and us is short. And you can just get from here to there pretty quickly. So as an example of that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. And 1 Thessalonians 4, um, and uh, verse 3 says uh, that this is God's will. This is God's will. Now, you know, everybody should just stop and go, wow, if the Bible's going to tell me this is God's will, I ought to listen. This is God's will, that you be sanctified, that is, that you be holy, that you be set apart. And then it tells you how to be holy, how to be set apart, or at least one way. And that is avoid sexual immorality. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says. Now, that's a sidewalk passage, because what it says there applies directly to us. That's a universal sin, sexual immorality. It's been a sin at all places and at all times, including at our place and at our time. So it's a warning that applies directly to us. And the teaching applies directly to us, that it's God's will that you be sanctified. It's, it's always been at all times and all places, God's will that you be sanctified. So you've got sidewalk passages like that, but... Many passages are bridge passages. That is, the distance between them and us is greater. And when you've got passages where the distance is greater, now you have to do a little bit of work to apply it. Apply what is taught about God, about sin, and about grace. So take the Uzzah passage. Now, I've already kind of applied that for us, but that's not a that's not a sidewalk passage, right? There's a, a chasm between what's going on there and where we are. So how am I going to make that applicable to me? How are you going to make that applicable to you? Um, well, what does it say about God? What does that story about us say about God? It says God doesn't mess around. God is absolutely holy. God does not countenance disobedience. So there's a number of things about God, right? God will judge sin. What does it say about us? What does it say about people? You know, people are stupid. <laughs> you know, arrogant. There's an arrogance here that I'm going to help God out. You know, look, this thing, the, the ark is starting to fall. And Uzzah thinks he's indispensable in keeping this tragedy from happening. God said, don't touch it. Now, what could God have done? If Uzzah doesn't reach out and touch it, what, what could God have done? If, like, God can intervene in a moment, right? And then the story would be different. The story would be about the glory of God in saving his own ark this own precious piece of, of furniture, God can do that and the story would be completely different. But no, Uzzah's got to jump in. Right? Because God needs me. Or take Deuteronomy 22.8, the parapet. That's a bridge passage. We don't have the flat roofs. We don't entertain on our roofs. They do. How do I make application of that? Well, remember what it was saying. When you build a house, make sure you put this guardrail rail around it so that you will not be guilty of another's blood you know if they were to fall off now how would you apply what's being said there to us in our day I mean what's what's being said as you abstract the the universal the continuing truth well what's it say about God that God would establish a rule like that to save people's lives what's that say about God he cares about people. 
Wait, well, he could say, y'all just be careful. <laughs> but he says, I want to, I want to take, I want you to take pains to make it safe for people to be at your house. Because I care about people. What's it say about God? He cares about people. What's it say about us? We're prone to, we're prone to injury. We're prone to accident. That we're vulnerable, and therefore need protection. Okay. Well, all right. How does this apply? How does this apply to us then? All right. Maybe that's maybe that's one. Okay. Here, how about this? What are the ways that somebody could be at your house and be unsafe in the wintertime? So, Michael, if I come to your place... You don't have to trust me. <laughs> I'm not talking about coming in. <laughs> but if I just come to knock on the door and I'm just checking your sidewalk, you don't have to have a, you don't have to have a guardrail around your roof. But you better salt and shovel for me, okay? Fair enough. Oh, really? That's that's an application of obeying Deuteronomy twenty-two eight, of making it safe for people that God cares about at your house. Shovel and salt for for them, so that it's so that it's safe. And we'll see some more examples of that next week because it is uh, eight seventeen. Okay. See you then, Lord willing.